Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Good morning. My name is Ed Nall, and it's my privilege to be the acting senior pastor here at Leesburg Community Church. Open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 34. I want to do a preface to our sermon this morning by reminding all of us, including myself, of what worship is, why we gather, why we are engaged in this thing called the worship of God. So I'm going to read you a definition of worship from Archbishop William Temple. He says, Worship exists to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination with the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. And that is why we gather. Why did I start here? Because we will encounter in our text this morning some very religious people, the Sadducees and a scribe. They know a lot about Scripture, but they are not aware that they are dialoguing with the Savior of the world, the Messiah. Their worship has the outward appearance of godliness, but it is not godly at all. It is really a religion of self-salvation. Last week, we looked at Jesus engaging in three conflicts as he established his authority over God's people. But his authority was unlike any authority the world had ever seen because it was a servant authority. It was a servant authority of a king kneeling and sacrificing himself to serve and to save his people. That's who Jesus is. He lived and he died and he rose again to serve his people. But he is also presently a divine king seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Jesus is the king who is currently engaged in expanding his spiritual rule throughout the whole world. This morning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 12, and we're going to see Jesus dialoguing with religious leaders in Jerusalem. The first encounter is with a group called the Sadducees, who have a hypothetical question about a resurrection in which they do not believe. The second encounter is with a scribe who asks an often debated question in Jewish circles. The scribe's question had a particular relevance in those days, and it is still one of the most important questions that we could ask ourselves today, particularly as we seek to love our neighbors during the time of a pandemic, an economic crisis, and racial unrest in our country. We are living in the midst of difficult times all around the world. And the question of life and death has come to the fore. And the scripture we will study this morning has much to say to us during this particular time. So let's read about Jesus' encounter with the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. I'll be reading from the ESV. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and rise up offspring, raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray for the teaching of God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank, we thank You for Your Word. It is without error in its original autographs. It is rich. We can look into it for all of our lives, every day of our lives, and not see everything that's there because you are there. So Lord, help us this morning. Help me to preach effectively and help all of us to hear from you this morning. Your word. Help us to learn the things that you would have us learn. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The first thing that we need to know in order to understand this passage is who are the Sadducees? They were priests and they were among the religious elite of Israel. But the two most important things you need to know about them is that they did not accept any of the books as, in the Old Testament as Scripture except for the first five books, the Pentateuch. They also did not believe that there would be a resurrection of the dead. They were the materialists or the naturalists of their day. They did not believe in the existence of the soul, life after death, final judgment, angels, or demons. They were also generally wealthy. They were the religious aristocrats of Judaism during Jesus' time. And they tended, like many aristocrats, to look down their noses, to look down on those with whom they disagreed. So they come to Jesus with a hypothetical question. A woman is married to seven different men during her lifetime, all of them brothers, all of whom died, leaving no children. Since she was married to all seven, to whom would she be married in the resurrection? This question, they thought, would trip up Jesus, would show how silly it was to believe in something like a resurrection of the dead. The question is based on what is called the Leverate Law, which God gave to Israel in ancient times. The law was designed to provide descendants for a man who died childless so that the family line and the family property were preserved in Israel. It's explained in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. 
Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son, whom she bears, shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. And here's the purpose clause. That his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. So the Sadducees come with their question, hoping to demonstrate the ridiculousness of belief in a resurrection. But I love Jesus' response here. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you believe neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. I hope the Lord never says that to me. Jesus says in verse 25, when they rise. He does not say, if they rise from the dead. But here's a question that we should answer. Did the Old Testament teach that there would be a resurrection? Should the Sadducees have known? Well, yes, the Old Testament did teach it. There are two passages that, I'll, that I will quote, and there are others, that demonstrate that this doctrine is in the Old Testament. One is from Daniel chapter 12, and the other is from the book of Job. Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel is clearly prophesying a resurrection from the dead. And in the book of Job, which is probably the oldest book in our scriptures, chapter 19, Job is clearly looking for a resurrection in, that, in verses 25 through 27. Listen, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Job clearly believes in the resurrection from the dead. Then, Jesus addresses the Sadducees' faulty beliefs about marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The resurrected life, resurrection life, is not merely a continuation of earthly life, but it is an entirely new dimension. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 42 and 44. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. One of my favorite theologians and a man I had the privilege of knowing, R.C. Sproul, said this of the resurrection life. If you use your imagination and try to think of the greatest possible experience that you will have in heaven, then multiply the joy you will feel in that moment by one million times. You will still not have begun to appreciate what God is preparing for his people in heaven. 
our existence there will be filled with joy far, far exceeding that which the marriage relationship provides in this fallen world. Close quote. R.C. is there now experiencing that. So the Sadducees are wrong about marriage in heaven and they're wrong about the resurrection. Sometimes if truth must be asserted, then error must be denied. Jesus would not be loving his opponents if he did not correct their errors. So Jesus answers their flawed views with a passage from the writings of Moses. Verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus shows them that they don't even understand the first five books of the Bible, their own accepted books. And this is his logic. He takes them to the book of Exodus, one of the books that they accept as being Scripture. He takes them to Exodus chapter 3, which is the story of the burning bush, where God introduces himself to Moses by calling him from out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Exodus 3, verses 4 and 6. Here's Jesus' reasoning, which is flawless. Since the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were all dead, when God identifies himself to Moses as being their God, these three must not be dead, but living. Since we know that they all died and they were buried, how can God identify himself currently, present tense, as their God? God does not, God does not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am their God, present tense. The patriarchs are experiencing life beyond the grave. This is Jesus' answer to what is likely mankind's oldest question. It's from Job 14, verse 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? If a man dies, shall he live again? The answer of both the Old Testament and the New is an emphatic Yes. Resurrection to new life. Yes, for those who believe in God's precious Son, Jesus. The Sadducees don't know who they're talking to. They don't believe in even the possibility of a resurrection, but they are speaking to Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who claims to be the resurrection. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. That's resurrection. Now, what of Israel? Israel is spiritually dead at this point. Remember the fig tree, how it was withered, representing a spiritually dead Israel? So how will God save his people if they are dead? Through the perfect sacrifice of his precious son. But not just through the sacrifice. Israel's salvation and ours will come because Jesus Christ 
rises from the dead on the third day to gain the victory over sin and death and the grave. Resurrection from the dead by Jesus is essential to our hope. We have no hope unless the sinless Savior died and then rose again from the dead. How do we apply something like this to our lives? Information about Sadducees and chief priests and scribes. Well, the scriptures have a complete relevance for us today. And here are some diagnostic questions that you might ask yourself about the resurrection and about God's power and about these Sadducees. How much like the Sadducees are we? Do we delight in God's word or just read it? Do we engage with God's word daily in a way that says to God, that this person loves my word, this person loves me? When we open God's Word, do we ask God to teach us? Do we minimize the impact of God's Word by just reading our favorite parts and never reading the whole? Do we appear to those people who know us well to be like the Sadducees, materialists or naturalists who just live their lives as though there is no resurrection, there is no life to come? And regarding God's power, do we have a tendency to dismiss God's power or to look at miraculous things he's doing and think that somehow they naturally occurred? Or do we attempt to do God's work in our own strength instead of trusting God to work in us through his Holy Spirit? So we have encountered the Sadducees, and now I want us to meet a scribe who has an often asked question. We'll begin in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. When the members of the Sanhedrin, as Matthew notes in the parallel passage, gathered themselves together against Jesus, they were fulfilling a prophecy from Psalm chapter 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This was God's plan. This encounter with the scribe, though, is different from the last few conflicts that we have seen over these last few weeks. This scribe seems to have a, a different attitude than that of the Sadducees. It's there in verse 28. The scribe acknowledges that Jesus has answered them well. 
The scribe has noticed the brilliance of Jesus' answers to difficult questions that were meant to trap him. The scribe seems to be open to the truth. Now, who are the scribes? They were teachers of the law. They were professional scholars who specialized in the interpretation and the application of the law of Moses and of the rabbinic writings. They were the lawyers and the theologians of Israel's religious system. But here's what they had done. The scribes and the chief priests had taken the Ten Commandments and extended them to include 613 laws. And they based it on this, that there were 613 letters in the Hebrew text of the Ten Commandments. They divided them into 248 positive affirmations and 365 negative prohibitions. They further divided them into what they called heavy laws, which must be obeyed, and light laws, which were less binding. Now imagine, what would happen if I gave you 613 laws to follow? Well, first of all, it's impossible. We can't even keep the Ten Commandments. Secondly, we would most likely wonder in dialogue about what's the most important command. This was a source of constant discussion among the religious leaders. Which is the greatest commandment? Well, the first part of Jesus' answer to that question is taken from what is called the Shema Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's called the Shema Israel, which simply means hear Israel. And then he continues. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, in other words, always, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The Shema was recited then and is recited now at the beginning and end of every day by devout Jewish people. But they didn't just recite it. Devout Jews wore it in a tiny leather box called a phylactery on their forehead and on their wrist while they prayed. They also placed it on the doors of their houses in a small round box called a mezuzah. Many Jewish people today have a mezuzah on their door. They kiss it every time they enter or leave the home. So everybody knew this first part of Jesus' answer. Shema. But Jesus continues, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And that's a quote from Leviticus 19.18, which is also a familiar verse to many Jews. But here's the genius of Jesus' answer. No rabbi had ever put these two scriptures together. And no one had ever made them interdependent. That is, unless you first love God, you cannot love humans as you should. Jesus' answer is a brilliant summary of the Ten Commandments. The Sanhedrin makes things more complicated. 
They complicate people's lives with their 613 regulations. Jesus simplifies everything down to this. Love God and love mankind. Love God and therefore love others. The two are both necessary. They fit together. Now the first part of Jesus' answer from the Shema is a summary of the first four of the Ten Commandments which have to do with love for God. The second part of his answer is a summary of the final six commandments about our love for other humans. The scribe said to Jesus in verse 32, You are right, teacher. and You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. C.B. Cranfeld in his Cambridge commentary says, the opening words in verse 32, which the text renders, you are right, should really be an exclamation, perhaps beautifully said, teacher, or what a beautiful answer. So Jesus' teaching was revelatory and would become the pattern of all New Testament teaching. In the New Testament, we have clear evidence that love for God and love for man are tied together. They cannot be separated. Listen to these words from 1 John 4, 19-21. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. We only have the capacity to love others because he first loved us. In Matthew 22, verse 40, that's the parallel passage to ours today, Jesus added, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now when Jesus says the whole law and the prophets, what he means is the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament hangs on these two commands. C.S. Lewis has wisdom, as usual, on these two loves, love for God and love for man, and their proper order in his excellent book, which I highly commend, Mere Christianity. To love and admire anything outside yourself is to take one step away from spiritual ruin. Though we shall not be well so long as we love and admire anything more than we love and admire God. Now, I want to address a question that may not have occurred to you. And some of you will probably not like what I have to say. I believe it's true, so I'll say it. Are there two commandments here, or three? My answer is there are two. And here's what I mean. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, is that a command to love yourself? My answer is no. But why do I ask the question? Because in recent decades, it has become popular, both in secular psychology and in the church, to teach or to advocate that Jesus is teaching that we must love ourselves before we can love others. That we must build up our self-esteem before we can esteem others. And if you buy that thinking, then there are three greatest commandments, not two. Love God, love ourselves, and love others. Let me tell you a story that demonstrates how this idea has infiltrated the church. The church. I was singing several years ago at Reunion Arena in Dallas at a Baptist youth conference. 
We were there doing music for two days as part of a larger program that included speakers and other musicians, video elements, etc. On the opening evening, after we had performed, they played a video that was accompanied by Whitney Houston's version of a song called The Greatest. The hook line is, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. I was appalled. We were at a Southern Baptist youth conference with the opportunity to speak into the lives of 19,000 kids with the gospel, and they were being told that love for yourself is greater than love for God or God's love for us. They're swaying back and forth, singing along with Whitney Houston. Thankfully, the next morning, one of our speakers at the conference, a man named Buster Soares, got up on the stage and said this, I don't know what Whitney Houston was singing about last night, but there is a greater love than learning to love yourself. It is the love that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ in spite of our sin. Amen. This idea that the greatest love is learning to love yourself, or that you must love yourself first in order to love others, actually limits your capacity to love. It limits your capacity to love others to yourself, to what you are capable of. It reverses the order that Jesus is teaching in our text this morning. When Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, he is assuming that a healthy dose of self-love is already in place in all of us. A self-love that is natural. A self-love that continually seeks self above others and above God. So Jesus begins his answer to the question about the greatest commandment with the Shema, which focuses on a deep love using all of our faculties, our heart, soul, mind, and strength toward God. Love for others follows and springs forth from our love for God, which is enabled by God's love for us. But how does any of this happen? when I am a sinner. And here's what I mean. How sinful are we? Uh, I'll start with myself. How sinful am I? I'm going to look right in the camera. I am so sinful that the Son of God had to die to pay the penalty for my sin so that I could be redeemed. I'm so sinful that the Son of God had to die to pay for my sin. You and I are so sinful that Romans 3, 10 through 12 was written about us. Listen. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. God's standards are high. Now that may sound pretty bleak to some of you, but that's not my intention. Here's what I mean. The depth of our sin, and I want you to listen closely, the depth of our sin magnifies the grace of God. The depravity that's in our hearts serves to show the riches of the grace and the forgiveness of God. The depth of our sin means that God's grace is even greater than we thought. God doesn't love us because we're so lovable. He doesn't love us because we have so many fine attributes. 
He doesn't love us because there is so much to commend in us. He loves us because He loves us. That's what He decided to do, because He is love. He loved us when we were unlovable. The Scripture says that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Tim Keller puts it beautifully, as usual. It's a quote. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I'm going to read that again because it's hard for us to get this sometimes. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. At the end of our text, in verse 34, Jesus tells the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. We're not told, but we would hope that this scribe would respond in faith so that he is not only not far from the kingdom of God, but is in fact in the kingdom of God. So we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. All of us have failed to do this perfectly. So from where does our hope and our help come? As always, it comes from Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus is the only person in the history of the universe who has ever loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor, his neighbors, the whole world, as himself. He's the only one. There was only one permanent, all-sufficient solution to all of the problems that we face as individuals, or as a society, or as the world, and that is this. We must place our faith in the one and only Son of the one and only God, who loved us and gave himself for us and who paid the penalty for our sin that all of us have, a penalty that we could not pay. He lived a sinless life among us and then he sacrificed his sinless life to pay for our sin. Praise be to God. If you've never put your faith in him, let this be the day. And if you are a person who trusts in him, rejoice. God's love for you is great. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for, for, love, thank you for loving us in uh, magnificent ways. We did not deserve it, but you have been gracious to us. You are kind and you are faithful, and while we are unfaithful, you are still faithful because you are God and you do not change. Thank you for setting your favor upon all of those who trust in you. May your name be praised in our church and around the world, even this day. And if there are people listening who do not know you, draw them, please, Lord, to yourself, even now. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.